0: here last week, uh, Dave gave us kind of the the who of Christmas. Who came to earth? It was Emmanuel, God with us. And uh, way back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, in Genesis chapter 3, was promised that the seed of the woman would be born, who would come and rescue mankind. And that... Savior would be the Messiah, would be from the line of Abraham, would be from the kingly lineage of David. He would come, he would be the wonderful counselor, he would be the prince of peace, he would be mighty God, he would be God with us. So that was the the who came uh, at Christmas time and who entered the world. We also know where Jesus came and where he was born. Uh, in the town of Bethlehem. And uh, the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 5 verse 2, hundreds of years before that event, prophesied about that little town of Bethlehem. and said, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who will be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient days. And so few disputes, even other world religions, They don't dispute that Jesus was born at a particular time, um, where. They don't dispute those things. In fact, there's more written proof in history of the fact that Jesus lived than Caesar lived. There's more written documents about Jesus' factual living here on earth. And then when did he enter the world? Well, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son. And we know from biblical evidence that Caesar Augustus had a, a censor to be taken and he wanted a decree written to do that. We have that in the Bible. We have that in outside Bible sources too, that this decree was written and we know the time when Jesus came to be born. But what I want to show you today is it's the coming of the Son of God into the world is it's much more than just historical fact of a when and a where that it happened. But it's very, very important, as we saw last week, who came, that's massively important who came was God. And this morning we're going to spend our time looking at, well why did he come? And how did he come? In a few days' time Christmas will will be here. And then we launch into a new year and we we pack the tree away and the ornaments and say goodbye to Christmas carols for another eleven months. And uh, and then we're done with it. But before we do that, as we come to the last Sunday uh, before Christmas, I want us to ponder especially why Jesus came and how He came. So why don't you pray with me as we begin this morning. Why don't you take a few moments, um, pray for yourself, pray that your heart would be receptive, pray for somebody around you maybe that you know, (coughs) needs to hear from God and His Word this morning, and also pray for me that I'd be faithful to Christ, to glorify Him and to show you His scriptures today. Father God, our prayer this morning um, is that you would engraft these eternal truths, these words into our hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, Lukey, if you can flip the slide for me there, to the verse that we'll be spending time in this morning is in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, you can turn there, or you can just follow along the screen. Paul writes to young Timothy, and he writes these words, he says, here is a trustworthy saying. That deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And this one verse this morning, it captures for us the primary reason that Jesus came to this world. And Paul begins this verse by saying, Here is a trustworthy saying. Now I ask myself the question, is not all of what Paul says, trustworthy then? Well, it's not the case. It is. And, and it's kind of Paul's way of underlining, sort of highlighting this is a trustworthy saying, putting it in italics, I don't know, today, hashtag trustworthy saying. He's saying this is very, very important. It's like when somebody says to you, well, honestly, you don't ask them, have you been lying? <laughs> there's an emphasis into it. Jesus says the same thing. He says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, in the old language, he says, this is something that Paul wants to capture our attention. He's kind of grabbing us and, and he's pulling us closer. And we know that all scripture is inspired by God. It's useful to us. But this is one of those scriptures that Paul is saying, this is just one of those that is rising up a little bit. It must grab us and it must must pull us in. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. That little phrase is unique to Paul. Paul is the only one who uses that terminology You see in the the early church then, by the time Paul wrote this letter to uh, Timothy, they had recognized, they would begun to recognize some key doctrines uh, that were probably common knowledge by the time of Paul's writing this, that people had put together these sayings. Paul says this phrase five times, this is the first time, he says it twice more in 1 Timothy, says it again in 2 Timothy, and he says it again In Titus. If you want to know those, you can come to me afterwards and I'll be happy to share those with you. But these phrases, it seemed like they were these well-articulated theology that had developed. Like this is succinctly what we believe. It's summarizing and distilling a particular truth into as fewer words as possible. The early church, they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a Bible app. They didn't have those things. They had the scrolls that were in the synagogue of the Old Testament And they hadn't yet had all of these letters in their pockets. So they had started to learn these phrases, these terms, these articulations of theology. And this particular one is in less than 10 words. And it marvelously summarizes the gospel, especially about this Christmas time. And each word is chosen very, very carefully. In fact, the word trustworthy is in the front end of the sentence. In the Greek, they would call that the emphatic position. It's put first because he really wants to grab their attention. He says, trustworthy is this word, is the saying that I'm going to give to you. It is faithful. It's worthy of belief. You can put your confidence in this saying. What is going to come next is reliable. You can bet your life on it. It is super important. And so this phrase, Paul is distilling the, what we call the incarnation. carne is flesh. The infleshment of Jesus. Jesus coming in the flesh. He's taking it down to its simplest form. Why did Christ come? And then he, he goes on to tie that knot a little tight. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. And then he says, that deserves full acceptance. Not partial acceptance. Not kind of mostly accepted. He says, this is all 100%. You need to accept this. Every one of us must fully accept what is to follow next in this verse. We must commit our souls to this very thing that is going to be stated. It's it's paramount. I suppose you could say it in another way. This is Paul 3 verse 16. He's saying this is important. What is going to come next? So he says trustworthy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves Full acceptance. What is this saying? Well, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Ten, less than ten words that he distills the gospel for us. Distills why we have Christmas today. And like I like to do is, I, I always ask him, why is it said that way? If this is key doctrine in as fewer words as possible, why does he say it like he says it? And it's interesting. Paul says, Christ Jesus. What do we usually say? Jesus, Jesus Christ. And, and Peter and James and John and other New Testament writers say Jesus Christ. Now, I don't get too hung up on it, but I just ask myself, well, I wonder why he says Christ Jesus. And I realize that's not the only time he does that. He uses that 25 times that he does that. He is the only one who says Christ Jesus. Luke says it in, when he's writing in his writings, But he's actually writing a sermon that Paul is preaching to one of the rulers. And he's writing, and said, Christ Jesus. So he writes what Paul says, Christ Jesus. So this was part of how he spoke. And I went and did some digging, and I realized that the other disciples, James, Peter, John, who wrote, they knew Jesus as Jesus first. They didn't know him as the Messiah yet. But they did put that, because Christ is the Greek for Messiah, the Hebrew Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would come and save his people. They knew him as Jesus and then Christ. Paul, however, his first encounter with Jesus was as the risen Messiah, as the Savior. And so he always puts there Christ Jesus, the anointed one, the one who is endowed with power from on high to come and and save mankind. He is commended by God the Father. When he, At His baptism, God says, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am so, so pleased. No, <laughs> in whom I am well pleased. I am commending Him. And Jesus would one day, He would go into one of the synagogues, and Luke records this for us, and Jesus would take one of the scrolls, the Isaiah scroll, and you would open to what we know as chapter 61. Back then they didn't have all the chapters and everything. So he opened up the scroll and he began to read what we have in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. And it says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me, there's those words for Messiah, anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And it's quite clear in this, this does not mean physical. Because there were still poor people when Jesus was on earth. There were still prison bound people physically. But this is clearly talking about those who are spiritually poor. Those who are spiritually broken. Those who are captive by Satan. In the prison of sin. And Jesus has come to set them free. And then Luke records what happened afterwards. He reads this section. He rolls up the scroll in Luke chapter 4 verse 20. And he gave it back to the attendants and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture that I've just read, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing he told them this Messiah this once one has come and it's me and I have come to set the captives free. They not only heard it it's not like oh you've just heard this saying they he's saying it has happened right now in me coming to earth. So Paul takes what I believe this trustworthy sentence or this trustworthy saying, I think he's taken two of Jesus's, Sentences that Jesus has said himself and put them together to come up with this. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12 to 13. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he says this, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus' words, He's come for Sinners, that's His very words. And that's, I want to encourage you, I don't know everybody here today, there might be some people that I do not know, or maybe this is your first time here. Maybe you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, and you're sitting here, or maybe you've been coming a couple times, and you're sitting here. I want to tell you that you are welcome. Jesus welcomes me. Welcome me one day, welcome sinners, that you can be sitting here. You are most welcome. Jesus saved me when I was 12 At a youth camp, he had his arms open and welcoming me. Jesus saved Dano when he was 30 years old in Hawaii. He plucked him out of Hawaii. Why? No. He saved Dano. And I know that there are wonderful stories here today of when Jesus came with open arms. He came, in his own words, he came for sinners. And then I think the other part of the... The sentence that gets put together comes from when Jesus was interacting with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was the short little man. He was a tax collector. And uh, he wanted to see Jesus couldn't because of his height. so He climbed up a sycamore tree. All of you are probably thinking of the Sunday school tune. Uh, climbed up the tree and Jesus knew he was there. He knew he had a divine appointment with Zacchaeus and told him Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house. And he shared his love with him. Shared what he came to do. And Zacchaeus got saved. And at the end of this encounter with Zacchaeus, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 19. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus talked a lot about those that were lost. He told three parables. The lost shepherd, uh, lost shepherd, lost sheep, okay? (laughs) The lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son, the prodigal son. He came to save Lost sins. That's where this verse has been put together, and I love how God does things. I didn't know the reading this morning that Susan would read, but she read from uh, Matthew uh, chapter one, and it talks about when he's um, the angels talking to Joseph and says, "It is he who will save his people from their sins." This Jesus who is coming to the earth. So we see why he came. It's very, very clear. He came to save sinners. That's why He came to this earth. But also important is the how. How He came to this world. It says there, Christ Jesus came into the world. This implies, obviously, His incarnation, that He came and was born. But it also, interestingly, implies that He didn't just begin there. A lot of people, a lot of religions even say, oh, He began there wasn't that the word came into the world implies he pre-existed somewhere else and he came he was forever god and he came into our timeline and he descended from the heights of heaven he did this willingly he did it in submission to his father to obey his father's commanding this and he came into the world as a human being see he had to he had to condescend To us, because there's absolutely no way that we could pull ourselves up to heaven. Not a chance. Uh, One of the old um, evangelists, he's a British born uh, evangelist, spent many, many years here in America and actually died in America in the 1700s, George Whitfield, he says this It would be easier for a person to pull themselves up to the heavens with a rope of sand. Then for you to pull yourself up to God by your own works. There's absolutely no way. You see, Jesus had to come to us. He had to come all the way down. He had to meet us where we were. Not halfway, a little bit from you, a little bit from Him, 50-50. No, we don't have any righteousness of our own. Even 99-1, not at all. We are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead people cannot do anything for themselves. They needed Christ to come into this world. Into this world of temptation, He was tempted. Into this world of sorrow, He was sorrowful. He wept. Into this world of misery and death, and He came into this world, this sludge of sin that we have. He came down to rescue us. I love how that one Chris, Chris Carroll says that he came and says that far as the curse is found. He came as far as the curse is found. He came to lost mankind, as we've seen, a seeking and a saving rescuer. He came for the, the offspring of Adam. Anybody not an offspring of Adam? We uh, are all the offspring of Adam and we are all, because of that, the Bible says to us, we are born into sin. Now some of you might say, that's a little unfair. You know, I wasn't there with the whole eating of the fruit thing. Okay, I wasn't there at all. There is a, one a musician. Uh, he's a pastor and a musician-artist. His name is Shilin. He says it this way. Although you weren't there, Adam represented you continues on. He says, think logically before you criticize. One player commits a foul, the whole team is penalized. So he put it there for us. And he's not just his words. This comes straight out of Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Adam was our representative. (laughs) Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Christ Jesus had to come into the world for us sinners, and that is everybody. He came to this earth as a hundred percent God, as we saw last week. He had to be a hundred percent God, and he came as a hundred percent human. And that is super fundamental to our understanding of the gospel. He needed to re- represent us. See, Adam represented us in the beginning, and we were plunged into sin. And humanity now requires a representative who is greater than the judgment, who is greater than the penalty of sin. And maybe you ask yourself, well, where's that that judgment against Him? Where's it coming from? Where's this judgment against sinners coming from, this danger, this threat? Well, Romans chapter 5 tells us that that threat against sinners comes from God, the Father. God is the greatest threat to sinners because of His perfect holiness. Romans 5 says, Therefore... We have now been justified by His blood. Christ Jesus has saved us, Okay, those who trusted in Him. We have been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. From the wrath of God. We need a perfect Savior who would come and rescue us, who would come and represent us as a human being before God. And there is only one person who can save us from the wrath of God. God Himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He was our perfect human representative. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us about this, verse 21. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man came also the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, I must explain those two alls to you. We do not believe that everybody is saved. What it means is is that all those people in Adam... Like I asked, everybody here is in Adam. We are all from Adam. All those people who are in Adam will die because of sin that is represented by Adam to us and our sins that we do every day. Those who are in Christ, it says. Not all people. All who are in Christ or from His line, as it were, will be made alive. That's what it is saying here. Those two all's. So firstly today we see that Christ had to come to earth. He had to come to earth. He had to be born as a human to represent mankind, all of us here today. He had to get into our skin. He had to be tempted. He had to live as we were. He had to walk in our shoes. Well, walk in their sandals, but he had to walk where they lived, live who they were, be tempted in every way, yet without sin. And in order for him to be the mediator, to bring us to God, he had to do that. He had to be both. He had to be God to be able to pay the price for the sins of those who would believe. And he had to be man to represent mankind, to bring mankind and God together. He had to be that perfect mediator. Mediator, But it doesn't stop there. You see, the thing is, He had to come. He couldn't save us by proxy from heaven. Okay, He couldn't. He had to come and be a human being. He came to save sinners. That is, all of us, except Jesus Christ, as we'll look at in a moment. Romans 3.12, no one does good. Not even one. Romans 3.23, any of you know this verse? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were all that. Maybe some of you are still there. Lawbreakers. We are god rejectors. We are sinners. And we need a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word for sin, maybe some of you know, it's to miss the mark. It's like an archery term, to miss the mark. What is the mark? Well, God gives us the mark. Perfection. Do we live up to that? No, we don't. Not in and of ourselves. Not at all. We are born... Mark misses. We miss the mark in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds every day, and we miss the mark in our nature, being in Adam. But I want to tell you today, though, as Paul will tell us a little later on, that no matter how far we think we are from missing that mark, that Jesus came to save Mark misses. He came to be a Savior. A story is told... About a man named Afra O'Connor. Afra O'Connor. It's in the 1800s. Pretty sure many of you maybe not have, have not have heard of him. Maybe some of the other South Africans up there might have heard of him. Um, he he was a, a vicious, vicious savage. He was part of a tribe in South Africa, in an area of the Namakwaland is where it is. And Afra O'Connor was someone that everybody in the 1800s feared. Um, The men who accompanied him were these hardened criminals. They were merciless attackers without feeling at all. Their actions in the people around them often resulted in death and devastation. The governor of the city in Cape Town put a price on his head and said, Dead or alive, bring this guy in. He's dangerous. And they were the terror of South Africa until a missionary came. His name was Robert Moffat. And uh, he came and said, I want to go to that people group. And people told him, they were like, you're nuts. And they actually said to him, uh, Afrikaner will use your skull as a drinking cup if you go there. He is that vicious and savage. And he said he knew, Robert Moffat knew about this sinner-saving Savior. And he said, I'm going to go. And would you believe that the first person who trusted Christ as Savior was this man, Afrikaner. And he was used by God as a great tool to reach his who were those vicious people as well. And we know many stories like this. I remember reading about uh, Billy Sunday, the, the, the baseball guy up in Chicago. He, I remember reading about him, and he would be drunk and everything and, and mock the, the preachers on the side of the street until one day he came up to one of those preachers sharing the gospel, and he got saved. God tugged on his heart and pulled him. He left his friends and trusted Christ and became a great, great evangelist. There's other baseball players, I'm sure Frank could tell us a lot of them, but Ty Cobb, remember he came to faith late in his life. And he said it like this you Now, I came to faith at the bottom of the ninth. <laughs> so he said, I do really wish it was the top of the first. That's what he said. He do he does really wish it was the top of the first. But I want to tell you though that we look at those stories, Africana and those big names, they get a lot of airtime because well known people or grand stories, but there are wonderful stories in this room right now about a Savior who came to save you. And I want to tell you that your salvation is as just as miraculous as Africana, because you were dead and you were made alive in Jesus Christ. Those are miraculous. One pastor said it like this. He said, God, save me from a life of drunkenness and drugs and murder at the age of six. <laughs> I understand what you... But you know what he's saying. He says, you know what? Without Christ saving me at the top of the first, I could have easily been that very person, like an Afrikaner or somebody like that. And God is a sinner-saving Savior. So if I had to ask you the question then this morning, how did Jesus save us? We know He came. Why? But how did He save us? And I know many of you would be quick to answer incorrectly, so He... By taking our place and dying for us on the cross and paying the price for our sins. And that is 100% correct. But there are a few other elements that are crucial that I want to show you this morning that come before that. We've already seen one this morning that Christ needed to be fully human. He had to fully represent us. And He needed to pay the price and be fully God. Last week. But not just any human. He had to come to this earth and He had to live perfectly from beginning to end. You see, both sides of the situation needed to be addressed. We need to address and we needed a, a substitute who would be in our place. And what also needed to be done was God's law, broken law by us sinners, needed to be fully obeyed and fulfilled in order to for Christ to give that to us sinners. He needed to pay for our sins and he needed to be righteous perfectly in order to do that from beginning to end. And I thought to myself until I got married, maybe my mom probably knew me the best out of, out of anybody at least when I was you know, a kid and a teenager and, and, and that that time frame. And I thought about Jesus' mom, Mary. And um, Grace played that lovely song, Mary, did you know? I'm sure that she didn't know all of those things. But we know as she saw Jesus and she pondered these things in her heart, she knew His life from the beginning, when He was born, knew His life all the way through, and she pondered things in her heart. You see, Mary was one of the first eyewitnesses of Jesus, because she was was there. And we have people like Matthew, Matthew, And Mark, who wrote basically what Peter sort of told him. And we got these stories that I'm sure that Mary passed on to Luke, because Luke came on the scene a lot later and told about Luke chapter 2. And she would have been the one who would have told him, because on that time Joseph had passed away between Jesus' age of 12 to about 30, so Joseph would have passed away. Luke came along. So she's this eyewitness telling Luke of all of these stories. And she definitely knew something was different right from the get go. That Jesus was special. She knew it. She had seen him being born. She communicated with the shepherds. She communicated with the wise men when Jesus was a toddler. She had that last minute escape to Egypt. She knew all of these things. She pondered them in her heart. Even the time when she and Joseph left Jesus in the church or in the temple. Left him in the temple. A couple of days later, they came back. My parents left me in the church once. They, uh, they left me sleeping on the pew one night. And they drove home. I think they were doing this whole Samuel, Hannah thing. They came back. They came back. And they, they got me and they took me. But Mary had seen all of this. seen Jesus' words saying, I'm about my father's business. I'm about my father's business. She even came to Jesus, the first miracle, when to turn water into wine for the wedding feast. And Jesus said, I don't want to reveal who I am right now. She knows these things. She knew Christ. She knew He had lived perfectly. I often think about Jesus' brothers and sisters. He had four brothers, uh, James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. And we know that He had at least two sisters. You just say sisters. There could have been five, but at least two sisters. They would have seen that. Imagine that, growing up with Jesus. Never back-chatted mom or dad once. (laughs) Always fully honored them and obeyed them. They knew something was different about Him. (laughs) They did. In fact, they didn't like it in the beginning. We know that. They actually tried to tell Him, came from the crowd, said, yeah, stop that now. Come, come, leave that. And Jesus, no, who are my brothers and sisters? They did. They did. Change. God worked in their heart after the resurrection. You know, James and Jude, his two brothers, became church leaders. And they wrote books, New Testament letters that we have. And so they knew things were different right from the beginning. He never did anything wrong. So in order, though, to be our perfect representative as a human, he had to be that holy second Adam that was needed. He needed to live a perfect life on earth without sin from start to finish keeping God's law in submission to his father in obedience to his father to the T and that's when his death then on the cross would be sufficient for our sin he would because he was that perfect savior that perfect representative he could absorb the wrath of God against unrighteousness against my unrighteousness your unrighteousness Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. We've already seen the first part of this verse this morning. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, there's the human, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law and breaking it all the time, so that we might receive adoption as sons. He needed to live under the law. We've broken God's law. We've broken God's law by being on Adam's team. As it were, and we've broken God's law each day in our actions and our thoughts. And as sinners, we need a perfect Savior and His righteousness to cover us because we don't have a righteousness of our own. But what I want you to understand today is, is that this righteousness that we get from Jesus Christ when we trust in Him, it didn't come out of thin air. It came out of His perfect obedience to God and God's law, and He gives that to us. So he had to live in our place first before he could die in our place. He had to obey on our behalf first before we could be seen as being obedient in Jesus Christ before his Father. The late Dr R C Sproul would often say the mission of salvation didn't take three days. Jesus didn't leave heaven, come down the cross, buried, raised and go back up to heaven. He had to come as a human. He had to live that perfect righteousness so that we as sinners, when we trust Christ, He had that righteousness to give to us and accredit it to our accounts and take our sludge of sin and take it on Himself. 2 Corinthians says that, For our sake He, God, made Jim, Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He lived in our place and He died in our place. And as I'm sure you know now, that our place, that all, only refers to those who are in Christ, who have trusted Christ as their Savior. You can say that He has lived and died in your place. So Paul writes here and says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the saying. And then Paul adds on there, of whom I am the worst. Other translations might say, I'm the foremost, or I'm the chief of sinners. Today, in our world, a lot of people would want to hasten to correct Paul's self-image about that, or his self-esteem. No, Paul, you're a good person. Paul actually had a healthy self-view. Of himself, that was that was accurate. And I know many of you have been around church for a while, and you you know Paul's human credentials. Philippians chapter two. I mean, he was he did everything humanly possible. I mean, he was the he was the law ninja of his days. Okay, he did everything, but Paul knew that when it came to that perfect righteousness that God requires. He was the worst. And Paul grew in his understanding of this. In 1 Corinthians 15, which we've been in this morning already a little bit, AD 55 or so, Paul writes and says, I'm the least of the apostles. And then about five or six years later, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. And then about five years later, he gets this passage and says, I'm the worst of all saints. He knew what his life was like when he put it against the perfect righteousness of God. And so he saw himself as poor and broken and Satan captured and sin in prison. That's why Christ came, to save and rescue those people. But it's amazing though, Paul didn't stay there. He didn't stay. oh, I'm broken. He didn't stay in his brokenness. But he says, my identity is not in my brokenness, this worst of sinners. My identity is in the one who has made me whole. And Paul says that oftentimes. And he, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, echoed this on his deathbed. He said, my memory's fading, and I don't remember much, but I do remember two things. That I am a great sinner. He says, and... I have a great Savior. That's what he remembered, John Newton. And so this morning as we look at Christmas again, I want us to see that that black velvet of our sin and brokenness. But don't stay there. See the beautiful diamond of the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to save sinners in front of that. It sparkles all the more on the backdrop of our sin. But look at the diamond of Jesus Christ. Paul would tell you that. Christ would tell you that. Paul knew that he needed a rescuer that could live the life and pay the price and be his perfect representative. And Paul is saying here, in those words, I am the worst. He's saying, if I can be saved, if God can save me, I doubt any of you, or maybe, has anybody thrown a Christian in prison? Tim? There's a, a policeman here. <laughs> Nobody's thrown a, a Christian in prison. Anybody who's given the write-off and signing on an undue execution of a believer? Paul did. He was a blasphemer of notes. And Paul knew that. And he said, if God can save me, the worst of sins. His arm is not too short to reach you. To reach your spouse to reach your brother, your sibling, your kid, your parents. His arm is not too short to reach. As we close, Rach knows whenever I, if I'm going to preach, I always, I go and find what Charles Spurgeon had to say. He's a prince of preachers, and he's one line, which is just how Spurgeon would say it, in light of this, the worst of sins. He says, if God can get the elephant into the ark, he can get the mouse, <laughs> and I want to tell you it is how he says it. But he's right in that. If you look at Paul and you think, Oh man, I'm just messed up and I'm wrecked, and it's true. But you never beyond the Savior. You never beyond. Would you take time to pray quietly together as the team comes up? As I said earlier, I don't know everyone here today. And maybe there are still some of you that are a thousand miles out in the sinless sea, sinful sea, and uh, drowning, and, and, and guilt of an anvil is tied around your ankle. I want you to know this morning, it doesn't matter how you measure up to people around you. You can swim better. You need a rescuer. You need a rescuer who will come and save you. And you need that perfect rescue. And I, I I want to encourage you to cry out to Christ today, to confess that you are a sin, that you fall short of God's glory, and that you trust him by faith. It's it's he's your only hope. Please speak to someone today. And God promises that those who, who come to him by faith in Christ, he will never ever turn anyone away, and it would it would be your best Christmas ever. Maybe also to encourage those of you here today who are one of God's children and And you know you're saved by grace. But I also want to remind you that you're saved by works. Not your works. Um, Your best works are filthy rags before God. But you're saved by the life and the works of Jesus Christ. And He had to be God to come and save us. He had to live a sinless life. A perfect life in obedience. Father God, um, I pray now, as we sing in closing, by Your Spirit, that You would work in our hearts today. That You would convict us. That You would challenge us, that you would encourage us. We we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Lord, as we'll sing in a moment, come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect Son of Man, in his living and in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man You came to save me. Thank you, Lord. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, and in Him we stand.